0: Adam, in, in high school. But in his senior year, a good friend of mine, and uh, he uh, decided to, uh, he was getting good grades and he was in sports, but in his senior year he found a young lady in high school and he got uh, involved with her and he began to just go out with her and she began to really pull his heart and tug his heartstrings, and and uh, when football season came around, which was usually in mid-summer, the coach came up to him and he said, Hey, we need you on the team this year. This is your final senior year. He would not believe it. But the guy decided that season not to play. We didn't really know why at the time. Uh, but he couldn't join the team because prior to that, he was involved with this girl. And this he was a high school. He was a teenager But when he got involved with her, he got pregnant. Got her pregnant, not him pregnant. (laughs) And uh, let's get our story straight, Ray. But he got her pregnant. He didn't tell anybody about it, but he had to go to work. Instead of going into sports after school and practicing and focusing on a scholarship, he had to get a job. And that was the responsible thing for him to do. It was the right thing. He needed to work. There was a baby on the way, even though both of these young people were teenagers. They got involved, but the sad thing, I remember seeing him that season when the games were taking place, he was sitting on the sidelines in the bleachers. Instead of being in the game, all he could do was watch the game. And the reason was, and the reason I bring that up, is how many of you know the enemy would like to sidetrack our lives where we're just simply watching what's going on instead of being a part of making it happen? You see, God doesn't want you on the bleachers. He wants us in the game. He wants us on the team. And He wants us to begin to participate. It's only those that are really on the team are the ones who truly enjoy the spoils of victory. God wants us to be in the game. He wants us to be on the team. Last week, we uh, listed some some decisions that we wanted to make as a church. One of those decisions is that we're not just here to get people saved and getting going to heaven. We want them to be equipped to be dangerous world changers. How many of you want to see people become dangerous world changers? We're not just here coming to church We are the church. We've made some decisions. We have not just come to watch it happen. We're here to make it happen. We believe that God wants to use us in any given situation. You are not just here waiting for the rapture. Jesus actually has a plan for every person. Sometimes we come to church, we think we're here to hear three points in a poem and just kind of get stirred with some song and go home and get back to what we think is uh, real life, and we kind of put our church hat on, we put our religious hat on, then we go home, and then we get into what we think is real life. But really, that's not real life. In fact, Jesus said that before we came to Christ, we were dead. We were without hope. In fact, Peter brings it out that we were not even a people. We had no purpose, no hope, no future, without Christ. you were actually just going nowhere. The Bible says we were dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians brings it out this way: that when a man is dead in sin he 's under the empire he 's under the rule of the power of the ruling power of the air, under the satanic and the demonic principalities that are ruling principalities and rulers of darkness, that rules the minds of men, that controls their minds and works through the deceitful lusts of their own heart, through the corruption and through the lusts of men. And through those lusts, He begins to seek to destroy, to manipulate. And even though you think you're in control, you're actually not in control. And you find yourself going through life making decisions only to come to the end of your life, looking back with a sense of regret. When you do not have Christ in your life, you live with regret. You look back and you say, wow, I could have been in the game. But instead, I'm in the bleachers. I'm watching it happen. There's so many today that are not in the game. They're not really connected with what Christ wants to do in their life. How many of you believe that God has things for us that are beyond what we could see or hope? What has entered in the heart of man we haven't heard, we haven't seen, the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. I want you to know this morning that when Jesus comes into your life and when He begins to knock on the door of your heart, it is a time where we need to be open. Amen? Amen. By the way, I want to just take a commercial break. Bleep! All of you need to be here in prayer and fasting. Do you know that in Old Testament history they, they would call what they know as a solemn assembly? And every man, woman, child, even the bridegroom and the bride and children and the babes that sucked the breast You go back into the book of Joel. They were to come. If you were part of the redeemed of the Lord, you need to come for fasting and prayer. Now maybe you can't fast, but there we are calling. It's not just we're calling. It was a time in the church, even in Acts chapter 2, when they all that believed, it says all that believed, came together. And as we come together, we are praying and we are interceding we are seeking the Lord as a body. We're not just coming. Look at my body. Can you imagine if my arm just showed up and my left leg but the rest of me didn't show up? God doesn't want just the finger and the left toe and the right hip. He wants the entire body. And may say, well, Pastor Ray, what's what's so important about prayer, collective prayer and fasting? How many of you believe that we need some breakthrough in some areas in our life? There's some strongholds in our life that need to be broken down. There's people that need to get saved. There's many of you that need to have your gifts stirred up and released. Many of you need to have the touch of the anointing. That can only come as you soak in the presence of God. I want to, as a pastor, if you are going through any problems, you're facing some difficult issues, if you're having marriage problems, You need to be here. End of commercial. Back on the sermon. Jump with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. By the way, there is an insert in your bulletin this morning. And I want to just let everybody know, because the Holy Spirit has already been moving in such a powerful way this morning. I may not finish this. (laughs) Amen. I just want to give everybody a heads up. I'm not, and the Lord really impressed on me not to rush this because this is so critical. And uh, James and and, uh, Santiago so appreciated these men of God coming, but they said something. I really pray that you will hear what they said. I believe it was Santiago said about the foundation. The foundation of our life needs to be laid right your course and your journey and the fruit that you experience in your life let me just say this if you don't like the fruit on your tree and the things that you're producing in your life maybe you need to check the seeds that you're sowing you see you reproduce what you sow so we need to be careful on some of these things but God has given a seed and this is the seed but in in this passage in 2nd Corinthians the Apostle Paul has had a tumultuous time, a a very difficult time, a turbulent time with the Corinthian church. They question the authority of his apostleship. The Apostle Paul refers to the Corinthians and it's almost in a derogatory way but he calls them spiritual babies and carnal. They had Issues of immorality in the church. There was carnality in church. There was division in the church. At one time, the church rose up and they were, they were comparing themselves. They were comparing leadership. And some said, I'm of Apollos. I like Apollos. You know what? I'm going to show up when Apollos preaches, but not Paul. But some said, oh, I like Paul because he's a teacher. He's a minister. He lays the groundwork. See, Paul Apollos was a waterer. He was a refreshing man. But Paul was a planter. Paul comes along and says, you're babies and you're immature. How would you like your pastor to call you spiritual babies and immature? Some of you would probably leave the church. In fact, if you go into 2 Corinthians 10, in fact, in Corinthians 10, you read it. It's, it's, It's an unbelievable chapter where they are responding to the Apostle Paul, and this is the way they saw their Apostle. They called him destructive. His letters... Are weighty, his bodily presence is contemptible, and he's destroying us. That's the way they viewed Apostle Paul. The Corinthians. You read it, 2 Corinthians 10. But Paul says, He says, I am, I will boast in the authority which the Lord has given to me, not for your destruction, but for your good. That's the way they viewed their apostle. Now, Paul loved them. He, in fact, he said to the church at Corinth, He says, I have begotten you in the faith. You are my kids, he basically said. I have begotten you as sons and daughters into the faith. And I betrothed you to the Lord as a chaste version to Christ. And he says, I challenge you this day to guard your hearts. But when he comes to the end of this chapter, he writes a word that is actually troubling. Troublesome. Notice chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. He says, this will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And I have told you before and foretell you as I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to you, to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. The Apostle Paul here is saying, listen guys, I love you. I love you so much that I don't want you to be swallowed up in the life of sin. I love you, and I'm going to not hold back. And then he makes this statement in verse 5. He says, I want you to examine yourself. I want you to see whether or not you are in the faith. Everyone say, in the faith. Am I in the faith? In other words, have you joined the team? Are you on the Lord's side? Are you in the faith? What a question. Now here he's had this relationship with the Corinthian church. He was actually with them for two years, but then he left them. He left them in char other leaders in charge. But then he writes this last letter, the last chapter. He says, Examine yourself whether you are really. In the faith. Are you really on the team? How many of you know it's possible to think you're on the team when you're not on the team? Paul is saying, examine yourself. Test yourself. Everyone say test. It's important for someone. It's important for you. I remember hearing a brother a long time ago. He said, you know, Pastor, I know I'm saved because my mother told me I was saved. Grandma prayed for me all these years. I know I'm saved. I haven't heard one guy say, you know, I know I'm saved because the Lord healed and touched my body. I know I'm saved because I've experienced God's presence, His love. I've been to every conference. I've been to every teaching. Jump with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Listen to what the Scripture says in Luke chapter 13. Verse 22, it says, And he went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one said to the Lord, Lord, are there few who are saved? Then Jesus said, verse 24, notice what it says in the red. Everyone say the red. That means Jesus said it. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter in, but will not be able. Wow, Jesus said salvation is like going through a what? A narrow. Everyone say narrow gate. What he said? He says, but he didn't say to seek. There's going to be seekers. There will be those who will be seekers. I'm seeking the Lord, Pastor. But notice what he says. They're not going to make it. Seekers are not going to make it. He only said those who strive. The Greek word is agonizo. It's where we get the word agonize. Man, pastor, this is not the kind of gospel I thought we were supposed to hear. Jesus said there will be many that will seek but not be able to. He said we're to st- Everyone say strive. Now that's not that we're falling back on a works theology. We're not coming under the law. He says we're to strive. He said, strive to enter in the straight gate. That means there's some things that I'm going to have to really evaluate. I've got to test some things. I want you to notice down in verse 27 for the sake of time. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Oh, no, let's go back to verse 23, I'm sorry. Or verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock and say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And He will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Wait a minute. I thought God knew everybody. I thought God knew everybody. What He's saying here is that He does not know you intimately. You See, God knows everybody. But what He's saying is He never got a chance to know you intimately. And the word there is like a husband who knows his wife intimately. How many of you know it's possible to go on a date with God? It's possible to be on a date with God and I'm holding hands with Jesus. Praise God! I'm holding hands. Put your hand in the hand of the man who walks the water. Man, I got my hand. But that's as far as you went. God's not interested in just holding your hand. He's interested with you with going Him all the way. He's interested in you becoming so intimately, divinely covenanted Him. He says, I don't know you. Let me just say this, folks. Do you know that it's not enough for God to know you? Then what is the other answer to that? Notice what, what else he says down here in verse 27. Verse 26. Then you will begin to say, Lord, we ate and we drank in Your presence while we were in some of those powerful worship services, we drank and we just sat there and saturated. We soaked in God's presence. We went to the best conferences. We ate the finest of meat. Man, I got syllabuses of every message and every conference of every teacher I've ever gone to. We ate and we drank and you taught in our streets. But I will self tell you, I don't know you. I don't know you who you are. I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of what? There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God and you yourself thrust out. Now, Pastor Ray, why you got up? Man, you just blew the service, Pastor Ray. Having a great time in the kingdom of God and now you're talking about joining the team. You know what I feel like sometimes? I feel like I'm a glorified travel agent. I want you to make the plane. I want you to make sure you get at the right terminal, at the right gate, which is called gate narrow, and get on the plane so you make it. It's called gate narrow the narrow gate. Here Jesus is making this statement. He says, I don't know you. Everyone say I don't know you. Okay, how does God know me? Then if it's not enough for me to know God, how do I get him to know me? Anyone want to know that one? How many would you like to know? How do I get God to know me? Is that important? Jump with me to Second Timothy chapter two second Timothy and you need to write this down dot it put stars around it man highlight it with color man you need to just put little smiles and all these things you can do to highlight this passage what I'm going to read to you second Timothy chapter 2 and it says down in verse 19 nevertheless the foundation of God everyone say foundation He's talking about the foundation of our salvation, the doctrine of our salvation, the foundation of God standing, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ, what? Depart from what? The Bible says the Lord knows those who are His. It's not enough for me to know God. It's not enough for me to go to church. The question is, does He know you? And the way He knows me is that I, in my heart, have made a decision. It's not what I do. It's not not faith by works. But I have chosen in my life to surrender my life and to... Depart. Everyone say depart. I have departed from iniquity. The word iniquity is a word that is taken in the Greek and it means to be bent towards. It means a tendency, an attitude. It has to do with a lifestyle, a way of thinking. A way of a dominant That Jesus said that if your right hand or right eye or right foot, when He refers to the right, He's talking about the dominant thought. The dominant way of seeing things. My dominant tendency. If the tendency in your life, a dominant tendency is in opposition to God's Word, He says, cut it off. Pluck it out. Wow, Pastor, that's, that's pretty dramatic. Wow. I've never heard this before. It's not enough for me to know Jesus. But does He know you? And the only way He knows me is that I'm living a life that is pleasing to Him. But Pastor, I see so many other people Everybody's in sin. I mean, everybody. Hey, come on, Pastor. Everybody's got a little sin in their life. We're all weak, and, you know, come on. Well, that's why Jesus said it was a straight gate and a narrow way. What he's actually saying, let's jump into Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Are you with me? Matthew chapter seven. Notice what Jesus said. Enter in the narrow gate. I hate this word. I don't like the narrow gate. I want it to be broad and easy. Not narrow. Why has it got to be narrow? Why does it gotta be difficult? Enter in by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many. Everyone say many. What Jesus is saying here, and it's a sad scenario, Jesus is saying that there are more people today in hell than there are in heaven. What he's saying? There are many that go the broad way and they're in hell. Kids, let me tell you something. Don't follow the crowd don't follow what's popular. Just because your buddies and friends are doing it, doesn't. Jesus said, the right way is the narrow way. The right way will cost you. The right way is a way that may bring some persecution. The right way might involve you taking a stand when everybody else says you're ridiculous and you're a nut. The right way is the narrow way. And notice what he says here. Verse 14. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few that find it. You know, I, I years ago I said, Lord, why did you make it this way? I'm I'm not kidding. Out of my own human heart, I said, God, I want everybody to go to heaven. Uh, is there anybody out there like me? Anybody out there how many of you want a lot of people to go to I I want everybody to go to that. I, I said, Lord, why why is it difficult? You know the Lord so told me? He said, Ray Get ready, Ray. And the Lord spoke to me, He says, It's not difficult. But your Bible says it's difficult. So, no, it's only difficult for those who don't love me. But those who love me, He says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, I thought that was a contradiction. How many of you know that things are difficult for you to do when your heart's not in it. How many here have ever had your heart in something and even though it was difficult, you didn't mind the difficulty? Because your heart was in it. When your heart is in it, you'll pay any price. Jesus talked about a parable one day. He talked about the parable of of the pearl. Of great price he talked about the parable a man who one day went and he found a pearl or he found, I'm sorry a treasure in a field and the Bible says when he found that treasure in a field he went back and sold all that he had so that he could have the treasure but here's the thing he had to buy the field you can't have the treasure without the field you gotta buy it see there's there's a price To pay. Discipleship involves an enlistment into discipleship was intended to align oneself for fellowship with the Father, supernatural power and loving influence to a dying generation. But how do I know what that way is? Jump down with me to verse 21. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Notice what he says. He starts dealing with people who offer God lip service. God's not interested in your mouth in the sense that when your heart is not in it. He says, not all those who say Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But those who do my Father's will are the will of my Father. Everyone say the will of God. God is saying those who align themselves up with the will of God. They're the ones that are going to go to heaven. They're the ones that love God. You're in His will. You've come to know Him. You're walking in His will. Now, I want everybody to know what the will of God is. I want you to notice something here. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ on your, on your notes here. Number one, a disciple must be willing... To take up His cross. It is the will of God for me to take up my cross. Everyone say, "My my cross. It is the will of God. Everyone has a cross. What does that cross mean? What does it mean to take up a cross? The cross means to align myself with the disciplines of His will. The will of God, which leads us towards glory, honor, increase, supernatural power with persecution. Notice the next scripture right here. If anyone desires to be my disciple, and by the way, a disciple is the same thing as a Christian. If you want to be a you can't be a Christian and say, "Well, I'm not a disciple, but I'm a Christian." No, a Christian is a disciple. Disciple means follower. Now, how many of you also know what the word Lord means? The word Lord means owner. When Jesus becomes my Lord, I have surrendered my life to Him as my owner. If anyone desires to be my disciple, let him deny himself. That is, this is in the Amplified, that is, disregard, lose sight of, forget himself in his own interest. Take up his cross, follow me, cleave steadily to me, conform wholly, to my example in living, if need be, in dying also. For whoever is bent on saving his temporal life, his comfort and security here, shall lose eternal life. And whoever loses his life, his comfort and security here, for my sake, shall find life everlasting. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life, blessed life, in the kingdom of God? Or what, would a man give in exchange for his blessed life in the kingdom of God? Now, one of the words I want to focus on this morning is the word, the third word up there, desire. How many of you believe it's important that God captivates our desire? I mean, it's easy for us to hear a message like this, and all of a sudden we begin to think in ourselves, okay, I'm not doing enough. Well, I'm not crucifying my flesh enough. I've not died enough. I see all the lack and the lack of discipline and the slothfulness. And I see how much my flesh has been in control. How many of you know we're made up of spirit, soul, and body? And there's a war within all of us. Even if you're born again Christian, you're filled with the Spirit. How many of you know for all of our life, we are going to have to deal with this thing called the flesh? That's why Paul says the only way you can deal with it is crucify it. He didn't say to massage it. He didn't say to talk to it. He didn't say to uh, negotiate with it or be diplomatic with it. There's only one thing to do with it: kill it. You got to crucify it. When Jesus said, "If any man desires," now actually, I just to be carnally minded, I'm going to say, I just reading that scripture, I would probably turn away and not follow Jesus on that one. Because I have no desire to crucify my flesh. I have no desire to leave my comfort zone. I have no desire <clears throat> to follow some Messiah who says he died on the cross two thousand years ago. Who knows, you know, and tells me to take up my cross. Man, I got enough troubles. Why do I need to have go and kill myself anymore? I'm just thinking in the carnal sense. One of the things that the Lord did when He came is before Jesus began to talk about taking up crosses and following Him, how many of you know one of the things that Jesus did was that He began to show us the Father? One of the most important things, before you're ever going to trust God, How many of you know that God needs to become really big in your heart? I want you to jump with me. My last scripture this morning to Luke chapter 5. And like I said, I will not finish my notes and everyone said hallelujah. But in Luke chapter 5, I want to show you something that what Jesus did to a man by the name of Peter. Luke chapter 5. Jesus is so beautiful because, you know, one of the things that He does... before He comes and He begins to talk about dying and following and being crucified. You know what Jesus does? He comes along and He shows us how attractive He is. How many of you know God wants to show us how good He is? You see, unless, you, unless your heart has been touched by desire, you won't lay down your life. And it's so important for me this morning to let you know, if all I say up to up here today is, say, you guys got to die to yourself. You better take the narrow And if you don't. You're hell bound. Hell bent, buddy. I'm not going to help you. But what we need to do is we need to help people realize and we need to paint heaven so big We want to paint Jesus so awesome that when you begin to have a vision, an understanding of the beauty of His grace, the majesty of who He is, when you begin to understand what He has for you that your eyes cannot see, your ears haven't heard what is entered into the heart, then and only then will you even begin to lay down your life. Because faith works by what? Love. Everyone say it again. Faith works by love. It doesn't work by threats or by fear. I can't tell you, you better believe God and going to hell. How many of have ever heard preachers say that? You better believe God, man, or I'll tell you, your time is short. Only a few days, a few years left. You might burn in hell. And you know, it is true you will burn in hell. But Jesus made every attempt to help us know That following him, that even though it would require and involve suffering, it was still worth it. It's still worth it. I want you to see what Jesus did in Luke chapter 5. Very short. Here Jesus comes and he's preaching at the lake, Sea of Galilee, verse 2. And while Jesus was preaching, remember this is in the height of his popularity. This was when things were really going, miracles were happening. Jesus is speaking faith, preaching the kingdom and the bible says that jesus saw two boats verse 2 by the lake and the fishermen had gone out and they were mending their washing their nets basically peter was at the service but he was not paying attention he was mending nets He was doing the things that he needed to do. He was a family man. He was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur. He had bills to pay. And he did not have time to listen to some prophet or another holy man that Israel used to have so much in that day. He didn't have time to pay attention to another holy man with another holy message. He's got babies to feed, mouths to feed, bills to pay, and he's taking care of business. But I love what Jesus does here. And it says, Then He, Jesus, got into one of the boats, which was Peter's, and He asked him to put out a little from the land and and sat down, and He taught the multitude from the boat. The reason was is the crowd was so massive, Jesus had to literally give Himself some space by putting Himself in a boat so He could preach to them. And so as He's down there, and He's in this boat and He's preaching, the Bible says that Jesus now stops. In verse 4, He stops. It's a commercial break. And He begins to say to Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, you better forsake all and follow Me, buddy, or your business is going in the hole and you're headed for hell. That's about what He said. You know what Jesus focused on was His need. Jesus is committed to meeting your needs. He's interested in you understanding that He really loves you. Now Jesus got into the boat, and then Simon comes back with a rebuttal. Here is a fisherman telling Jesus, Lord, we have toiled all night. We've given it everything we have. We've burned out. I know this lake like anybody. My father was a fisherman. My grandfather was a fisherman. I know what I'm doing and I don't need some carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish. The Bible says that Jesus said to launch out, but here's what Peter says, nevertheless, at your word, He didn't say, Lord, I don't feel like it. I'm having a panic attack. You need to understand, I need Prozac. Don't tell me to launch out into the deep. I need, I need my, I need time out. I need time out. He said, Lord, this contradicts everything that I'm doing. By the way, for me to launch out means that I've got to pay my help. You're asking me to keep my help, my hired hands on it. That means I've got to pay them. I haven't made anything all night. Now where's the money going to come from? You're asking me to invest into something you have said when the money's not there, Jesus. I've been fishing all night. Fred, hey Pete, Dick, George, come on back. Now, that wasn't their names. I guess we're going to go out fishing. Again, the carpenter telling us that uh, we're going to catch something. One of those holy men. Let's get in the boat, pull the nets in, let's launch out. Peter, I am tired. I want to go home to my family. I'm done for the day. I know you are. Jesus said to launch out. Boy, this better be good, Peter. I'm just trying to put it into an understanding where we are today. Well, guess what happens? They launch out into deep. And when they had done this, Everyone say, done this. When they had done this, it didn't say when they thought about it, they did it. They caught a great number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners and other boats to come and help. And they came and filled the boats. So they began to sink And when Peter saw this, he fell down at the knees, Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were astonished. Everyone say astonished. How does desire come? How does Jesus give us the desire to lay down our life? He does it by bringing a sense of astonishment. I want to tell you this year, folks, God wants to do some things in your life to astonish you. He wants to give you a net-breaking, boat-sinking kind of blessing. He wants to, and now keep in mind, Peter had not been a disciple yet. He had not followed Jesus yet. But the Bible says, notice this, I want you to notice an order. Notice what it says here. When Peter made the statement after he recognized the miracle, the Bible says here that he was astonished. And so all was James, John, the sons of Zebedee, the partners with Simon, and Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, what happened? they forsook all and followed him i want you to notice i call it the spiritual protocol jesus focuses on letting you know how awesome and how good he is he's here to blow your mind with how big our net boat net sinking boat net breaking boat sinking kind of blessing he wants to give to us And it's through the revelation of His goodness. This guy actually lays down his nets. He walks away from his business career. The Bible says they first took all. That meant Peter had to say, Hey, James, Fred. Jesus is calling me to be catchers of men. It's been great working. Hey, I'm going to give you guys the business. Here's some names. Here's my clients. You can have them. I'm following Jesus, buddy. Here's the point. Discipleship starts with desire. God wants to touch our desire this morning. He wants to open your eyes. Because the only way I can really embrace the message of the cross because what is the message of the cross about? The message of the cross is when God begins to overwhelm me, He begins to open my eyes to the revelation of His kindness, His goodness, His mercy, His great blessing. And then and only then will I begin to let go of some bad attitudes. Let go of some laziness. Let go of rebellion. Let go of foolish excuses that have always kept me from really following Christ. You see, the reason why people don't follow Jesus today is because they have not seen Jesus Christ lifted up and glorified in their life. You know what we're going to do at New Life Fellowship? We're going to make Jesus big and attractive. We're going to blow your minds with how Jesus is so awesome, so great, and so big so you will want to run away from everything that you've been hell bound, held tied to. So you begin to follow Jesus. It's not about you better follow Jesus or else, but it's about you better follow Jesus because if you don't, man, you don't know what you're missing. It's all about our heads. I told you. I-